The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Courtney, thank you very much. And hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour on The Exchange, it's a red day for regionals, led by First Republic, of course. They hemorrhaged deposits in the first quarter. Our guests say it's now a battle for survival. Will we see the same from PacWest when they report in a few hours? Or is this just a First Republic problem? We will get the latest and their opinions on that. Plus, Google or Microsoft? Both are about to report. Google is cheaper, but Microsoft has handled the AI disruption better so far. And both have slowing cloud businesses. And one luxury fitness company just crushed earnings. High membership fees are one reason why. But what about a looming consumer downturn? What about weight loss drugs? Could they kill its mojo? We'll explore all of that. But first, let's get to Dom Chu with these markets and bigger declines than are normal lately. Yeah, and they have been. And it's been a down day pretty much all session long. And that's the kind of difference that we're seeing. There's no real wavering right here. Uh, the S&P opened lower to start, and the highs of the session, we were still down about 11 points, down roughly 42 at the low. So again, near session lows right now. The S&P now below the 4,100 mark, off by about almost one full percent. The Dow Industrials outperforming, if you want to call it that, down one half of one percent, or 183 points, 33,692. The Nasdaq Composite the underperformer off one and a quarter percent, 145 points to the downside, 11,891 the last trade there. It's not all red, though. Take a look at these stocks. There's at least two things they have in common. Check out PepsiCo is up 2%. Mondelez is up 1%. Hershey, General Mills, Lamb Weston, all up between half to 1% overall. The first thing they have in common is they're all consumer staples. The second thing, yes, they're all green, but they also, and I haven't done this in a while, they all get gold stars, one, two, three, four, five, because every one of these stocks, consumer staple in the green, hit a record high in trading so far today. That's one of the reasons why some traders are looking at some of these movements and saying maybe there is this more defensive tilt towards the market overall. Check out those consumer staples. And then, of course, the stock of the day, as Kelly mentioned, is First Republic. The worst performing stock in the S&P 500. It's not often that you do see a stock in the S&P drop by about 34%, but that's kind of what we're seeing right now. It's a $10.54 stock. It was an earnings catalyst to start. Deposits, not the way they thought they were going to be. They fell by worse than analysts thought overall. First Republic looking at some of these headlines and maybe some investors still questioning about what the moves are going to be. But Kelly, you made a good point. PacWest is one of those other embattled Western U.S. lenders that's reporting after the bell today. Western Alliance was generally positive after its report. First Republic is decidedly negative. PacWest may be the tiebreaker, if you will, if you want to call it that West Coast regional tilt. We'll see what PacWest does after the bell today, Cal. Back over to you. It could tell us a lot about which way the wind's blowing. Dom, thank you very much. And that's where we pick up with this battle for survival at First Republic. Loan balances fell by nearly $100 billion last quarter, excluding the lifeline from JPM, a 41% drop, which they said stabilized this month, at least until those results came out last night. Let's get to two banking experts and ask how they see this all shaking out. Joining me now is Jared Shaw, regional bank analyst at Wells Fargo and Ben McEvac, who is co-founder of Strategic Bank Value Partners. Welcome to both of 
of you. Jared, just real quickly with you, I mean, obviously this came as a big surprise to the market. Um, why didn't we realize how bad it was going to be? Yeah, you know, we were expecting significant deposit outflow. This is worse than expected. Uh, I think it just shows the the nature of the First Republic model where they had very high average uh, average deposit sizes. And that's where we really saw the pressure in March was at the banks that had uh, very uh, con uh, concentrated deposits. And that's where we, we saw the outflow. So, um, yeah, definitely more than we expected. Uh, we were expecting a high number. This was this was even higher. But uh, I think, again, it just shows the, the nature of the deposit base that was, was at the bank. Ben, what are the options now? I mean, the company basically has to rapidly shrink its balance sheet, uh, reportedly eyeing up to $100 billion in asset sales. It says uh, they're looking for loans that they can basically sell quickly, the kinds of loans that they would even make at all at this point. Their wealth management franchise is uh, in the middle of some turmoil. What do you think the next couple of days will now bring? I mean, it, it, it's odd how we've gone from exuberance yesterday into the print to now questioning again existentially whether they can make it. And again, their share price decline has gotten worse throughout the session today. Sure. So I think they have four paths out of this. Um, one, they can pray for a Fed pivot. I don't think that's going to happen soon enough. Um, two, they can strategically and uh, surgically shrink the balance sheet. And so I, if you look at where their deposits are, um, they have a loan to deposit ratio of, I think, 165%. That's unheard of. So they need to shrink the bank and they need to shrink it quickly. Probably 70 to $80 billion of assets they would have to sell. Um, number three, an equity infusion. So they could recapitalize the balance sheet. That would be dilutive to common shareholders, but that would be an option as a way to survive. And then number four, which I think is probably the most probable outcome, uh, they need to find a, a partner to merge with and, um, and partner up with a healthier bank. Ben, you had been looking at regional banks, buying up some of them in the turmoil. And I just want to point out this kind of micro cap, but it's a regional bank around here, Blue Foundry, is doing a share repurchase today. And its shares are up six and a half percent. So where do you see opportunity and as chaotic and difficult a landscape as this is right now? It's been a, a very challenging start to the year. If you look at the two big to fail banks, um, they're about flat on the year. And so I don't know that there's a lot of opportunity there where we've been focused on and what we've been investing in are what I call they're maybe too big to fail. It's you know, that's part of the problem is we don't know if they're too big to fail or not. Um, and, and those are down anywhere from 20 to 30 to 40 percent. I'd put regions, Zion, Key Bank, Fifth Third, uh, U.S. Bank, Citizens, in that bucket where they're down 30% on the year. They're now trading at six and a half times earnings, paying dividend yields of almost 6%. And that, that's not normal for a bank to trade at six and a half times earnings. On average, they trade at what's called 12% earnings, or sorry, 12 times earnings. Right. So the market is, is basically saying um, those earnings estimates are 40% plus too high. And our, our view is that's that's overly bearish. And so we, we see opportunities in that next rung down um, in, in the big regional banks. Although, Jared, I wonder at this point, no matter what happens in the near term, if we're talking about a situation where those banks are less profitable in, in the, the longer run, I mean, maybe there's more regulation. Again, they already face uh, quite a bit of it. It's more the lower uh, cap banks that would be hit by this. But do you agree with what Ben said about this tier being a place to focus for actually some opportunities if people want to want to you know dip their toes in yeah i mean i my, my coverage is a little bit below those the, the level of those banks in terms of asset size 
But yeah, what we've definitely seen through earnings is that there was not a broad-based contagion, as, as some people, I think, feared uh, maybe in mid-March. So when you look at banks in the Southeast, when you look at banks in strong geographies that are still the trusted financial advisor of their commercial middle market customers, uh, we still think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, in terms of expenses, yeah, there's likely to be higher expenses, uh, certainly from FDIC uh, premium surcharges. Um, and then on capital, we're, we're likely to see some change in the way these banks have to uh, um, calculate and allocate capital, uh, which will put incremental pressure on profitability. But to the point of where they're trading on, on a PE basis, we think there's still uh, some really good uh, opportunities out there in, in the cap banks. You know, and Ben, for people who are, are just so bearish, they say, I, I don't want anything, I don't have, have anything to do with this. You make an interesting point about 2008 and how the preferreds did back then. I mean, what would you say there about whether it's the bigs, the maybe too big to fail, uh, some of the smaller players, and, and that being uh, an interesting place for people to sniff around? I, I think there's two opportunities. If, if you want to by the common equity, I think these bigger regional banks are the way to do it. If you want to go further out on the risk spectrum and um, get involved in some of these banks that are more in the eye of the storm, so the PacWest, the Western Alliance, uh, the preferred stocks uh, are probably the way to do it. I think there's two ways to win. One, the bank manages through the storm and navigates through it. Or two, like I mentioned with First Republic, they partner up with a bigger bank and, and become uh, part of a bigger, better bank. And when that happened in 2008, the preferred stock um, that was outstanding was converted to an obligation of the acquiring bank. And so Merrill Lynch, for example, became a B of A preferred stock. National City Bank here in Cleveland became a preferred stock of PNC Bank. And um, I, I think that could be a blueprint for um, an attractive opportunity for someone who wants to get into the banks that are in the eye of the storm. Yeah, if they want to do that, I get, you know, I'm queasy just talking about it. Thank you both very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Ben McAvack and Jared Shaw. Despite those issues at First Republic, my next guest says the predictions of a banking Armageddon after SVB haven't come to fruition, and it means calls for rate cuts from the Federal Reserve, well, they're still premature. Joining me now is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. He's here on set along with CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Welcome to both of you. Do you want to just key off of what the bank's uh, analysts were just saying? I saw you both kind of chuckling at the maybe too big to fail comment. And Steve, I just wonder if we're going to if we're going to have to test that once again here. If things look, you know, things are looking worse in the months to come, this this kind of regulatory gray area and, and our policymakers just going to have that. OK, well, worse comes to worse. Well, we will step up here. So as, as our colleague uh, David Favors reported, there is a plan going back and forth about the banks, other banks stepping in. I, I'm not sure how much they're loving that plan of them stepping in. I'm not hearing they love it a whole lot. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's not a whole lot of appetite on the part of officials now to step in and provide a bucket of money with which to wash down or wash off the sins of First Republic, such as they may be. Um, I, I'm not hearing that that's something that they're willing to do. They're, they're monitoring the situation, as far as I know. But I think they've spoken their piece when it comes to creating this uh, bank term funding program, providing uh, access at the window. And, and honestly, you can't, if you're a policymaker, sit there and make policy for another black swan event. It's like, well, something bad may happen, so I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. I kind of disagree a little bit with David about how 
how dire the situation could be. Really? But I, and I'll let him have his piece, obviously, but, but I, I understand the idea that you can't sit there and say, well, a bank may fail down the road, so therefore I'm not going to hike now. What, David, explain a little bit. I mean, if regulators came to you, would you say, listen, don't be too quick to jump into this because it is contained and it's not Armageddon and, you know, and everything's fine. I don't know. The, the, last week, even the deposit mm -hmm. data, it looked like things were moving around again. I think things have settled. There's no question they've settled. First Republic's been an issue now since the beginning. Its stock has been, you know, down at 12 to 16 bucks and, and bouncing around there after losing 80 percent. Um, I think there's two big questions. One is, are there specific financial instability events that the Federal Reserve needs to react to? And I think Steve answered that question beautifully. The answer is no. Uh, they've set up the programs they're done. They've solved those. And if there needs to be more, there will be more if they become systemic. So it's not going to get in the way of monetary policy doing what it's supposed to do, which is anchor long-run inflation expectations and manage the dual mandate. We've seen that. That's done. Then the question is, what are these banks worth? What is the whole banking system worth in a world where your deposits can disappear and you can lose $100 billion in the snap of a finger, or what happened at SIVB, Hold on, or I'm going to move, move a couple hundred yeah. thousand dollars now, right with my phone. <laughs> or right here, right up, oh, a deposit run on a bank because I just picked up my phone. And to your point about the value of these franchises, Dave, I mean, we're talking about the banks largely trading where they were when Trump was elected in 2016. Yes. This has been a terrible, it's been, that was seven years ago already. And so it's, you have to wonder if that's already reflected in some of the valuations, even though plenty but would see, say but Kelly, that's my, that's my problem. If you guys would put pull up the KBW, the, the banking index. Banking equity values are down. And they're down and they're not back to where they were before. And banking equity values matter for banking safety and soundness in a way that it doesn't matter for normal companies, sure. right? It's part of how they might be able to raise money. So to the extent that that is down and remains down, it still suggests to me there are problems in the banking system. And not to mention the joke I just made about moving money, I think that's a big deal. Or is I it just a bad business? Is it just a tough business to be in It's a business right that's now? changing, and perhaps there is some systemic risk that comes from those changes. I'm sorry. But, yeah, but I that. actually think the point is, I think the Fed has all the tools to deal with the systemic risks. We've built so many great tools since 08-09. The ECB used them to deal with the Italian government bond market. The UK dealt with the long end of the guilt market. We dealt with our banks and the residential mortgage hedging problems. We don't have that problem. We can set up financial funding facilities on anything we like, munis, corporates, you know, commercial real estate. That is not going to get in the way of the monetary policy debate. Is the Fed going to hike rates next in, on May 3rd? I think absolutely. They are still fighting inflation demons. Are they going to let financial stability get in the way of that? No. But are there fundamental changes going on in the banking industry? Could it be that we are going to see a significant transfer of wealth from shareholders hmm. to depositors? Hmm. Because depositors now have the ability to go to Apple and get four and a quarter percent right and have a Goldman Sachs bank account behind yeah. it or go to a money market fund. These are big, big seismic really? changes that I don't really think we've all processed. Just yet. real quick on that. So we spoke with Mike Darty yesterday and we're all treating this as if there's monetary policy and then there's the banking crisis. But aren't they one in the same? You know, this kind of the dramatic change in interest rates that has been undergone here, the Fed not pausing to assess conditions, the fact that they're sucking deposits out of the system. I mean, these ultimate this, the bank crises seem symptomatic of a policy well, that was too much. I, I wouldn't say one in the same. I would say that the rate hikes caused some turmoil. We had people that really didn't understand how to hedge residential mortgages, the 
Investment Committee at SIVB and maybe some others at First Republic and others. We'll see how it all plays out. And we have ones that did understand it. I, the, the numbers that came out of Citibank and Bank of America were off the charts, particularly in the fixed income businesses. Clearly, they knew how to hedge fixed income when the rates were going up and the Fed was telling you to get out of the way. So that's, that's not a systemic story. The, the Fed is on a mission to deal with one thing and one thing only, two back-to-back 7% inflation years and the need to maintain an anchoring of long-run inflation credibility at 2%. And financial instability risk could have macro implications. Sure. Small. And I think right now they look pretty small and they probably are pretty small. But that's not the job at hand. The job at hand is that. That's what they're going to be talking about on May 3rd. And this stuff is going to be dealt with, I think, largely speaking, with balance sheets and funding facilities like we've seen globally so far when any financial stability I, I assume, issue I assume up. we're almost out of time here, but I do want to say we've only talked about half the problem. Because <laughs> half of the problem are the banks and whatever issues may exist there. I don't even call it a banking crisis. I call it banking turmoil. I like Jim Bianco's idea about a bank walk, not a bank run. The other maybe more important part of this thing that they're going to be discussing, discussing next week is the macro fallout from tightening credit conditions. And of course, I brought a chart for that. <laughs> and if you look at what's happened on the year-over-year change in deposits, I'm not showing you the whole, the whole history that we have here, but it's never been seen before. Wow. This kind of year-over-year decline in deposits. Now, a piece of that's gonna be, see that, that it's turned negative there on the, on the, the uh, orange line there. Now, notice there's only a twinge of an impact on the loan side of things, okay? So far. So the fear, of course, the more important economic fallout, which, by the way, may be hoped for at some part by the Fed. That's part of tightening conditions. But that is sort of another, I don't want to call it a black swan type event where we don't know what the fallout is. The concern you would have, and I'm, I'm, I'm just being careful about this, is that it's not a linear relationship between the decline in deposits and the impact on the economy could be more is that it goes nonlinear, yeah. which is sort of what happened in the great financial crisis. Again, I'm not saying that's going to be repeated. It's something that bears watching. And to the extent there's a reason for the Fed to say raise a quarter and hang out or there. Or not for, raise it all. Or which not I'll raise keep... it all. That's another start of the argument. And hang out there for a bit to see how this dynamic plays out. That would be the reason. As we're talking, by the way, David, First Republic wrong. was down 44 percent. First Republic down 44 percent just now before now being paused for volatility. There you can see the last trade. So it's trading under nine dollars a share now. And again, as soon as that earnings uh, release happened, Dave, and the bank gave that short statement and didn't really have any further comment. I mean, the. Now, to everybody's point, the question becomes, okay, does somebody else step in here? And Steve, to your point, um, is that somebody going to have to be, you know, on a private sector, another bank, because this is not going to be a policymaker response? Or we have 4,270 banks in the United States, all commercial depository taking one of those banks should happen to fall. It's just not. I mean, we see this happen. We've we've come down from 14,800 to 42 in 40 years ago. I don't have... I, there are lots of people lined up to take over the client but bases the only, of all of these the banks. The only question here I think you both acknowledge is, does renewed trouble at First Republic bleed into trouble at any other institution? If not, because we have these these backstops now and everyone's moved their cash around and, and kind of that initial round has stopped, then no one has to care, broadly speaking. If for some reason we start getting on social media or hearing people talk about, hey, I just better make sure that my bank is safe. So if First Republic... I, I want to tee David up to answer this question because before <laughs> we came on air... David and I were talking about deposit betas, okay? 
how secure is your deposit base in this world where you can go to a money market and get a government insured, not government insured, but a government money market. It's not insured by the government, yep. but it's really tight in terms of what it invests in. Earn four and a half, four sixty, whatever it is right now on your money, or go into this Apple thing. And so the question is not limited to First Republic. It's about the 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 business model of these banks that rely upon what they thought were sticky deposits and end up being sort of having lousy glue. I think the macro story is. We are in the process of taking money from shareholders and banks and delivering it to consumers with higher deposit rates. And I think they're going to be able to get that. Apple is facilitating that. And this whole structure of what we've learned about bad investments is getting people to think about why am I leaving my money there? And I'm not sure, Kelly, that actually may be stimulative. Shareholders don't spend as much as consumers in a marginal propensity to consume sense. You have high savers generally and wealthy people. And here you have Joe Sixpack. Right. Joe Sixpack's probably going to spend that money. So I, I think there's a lot of macro to think about here. Of course, systemic issues are important. And if it happens quick, okay, we're going to have we're going to have to deal with that. But if it happens slowly and it's a bleed and just the banking business model, commercial banking depository business model gets less exciting, a la Elizabeth Warren saying, let's make commercial banking boring again. Right. right. Uh, I think that was her statement on the day of the SIVB collapse. There's a story, a Glass-Steagall-esque type story here that sort of says maybe we're not supposed to have so much of this stuff I'll uh, give you in our risky commercial bank. More, more than that is we've moved into a, I want to say, a Six Sigma world when it comes to daily access to my money. I do not want to think about where my money is. I want my money. I want to move it where I want it to go. I know the technology exists to do that. This nonsense about a three-day hold on my check about this other stuff, it is not on in the world we live in today. So we're gonna have to figure out a way to provide safe, immediate Six Sigma access you know, to Steve, your bank account. Have you ever heard about crypto? Because <laughs> Bitcoin could really... Bitcoin well, fixes this. You're leaving out the safe and stable part. <laughs> yes. Other than yeah, that, it's perfect. Maybe stable coins. Yes. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Uh, great to have you at a moment where First Republic shares, again, are under pressure. And, uh, you know, to the point Steve was making and others, uh, we don't really know exactly where this chapter ends. David Zervos, Steve Leisman, we really appreciate it today. Coming up, we'll talk about shares of Lifetime surging 9% after they beat earnings and raised guidance. There's more to this story than meets the eye, though. We've got the consumer read-through on it ahead uh, with the Dow down 278. Plus, Google's cheap, Microsoft's coming for their core search business, and both report after the bell. We'll get the traders' take. And here are your markets near session lows right now as First Republic shares have weakened again once they reopened, uh, trading to the downside below $9 a share. The Dow's down 276. The S&P's below 4,100, down 1.2%. The Nasdaq down almost 1.5%. The Russell Small Caps with big financials exposure down 2%. And the 10-year yield is back below 340. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. 
Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's not all gloom and doom. Uh, Shares of Lifetime Group are up 9% right now. They're a high-end fitness club operator. They just beat on the top and bottom line, raised their full-year guidance, a rare feat this earnings season. Uh, We're up nearly 60% so far this year as well, just pretty impressive. And a recent note by Wells Fargo, though, is warning of a major looming pressure, potentially. The restart of student loan payments that could hit just as the labor market softens, that could prompt people to cut discretionary spending on, say, gym memberships. So are investors too pumped up about this stock? Let's ask Simeon Siegel. He's senior analyst at BMO Capital Markets. It's good to see you, Simeon. And uh, man, you know, banking crisis on the one hand and lifetime doing amazingly on the other. By the way, I was listening to the last segment and I'm just thinking how much of like a comedic relief I'm going to serve here. That was was intense. I know. (laughs) So um, great to see you, Kelly. I, I think that we are seeing some nice traction in gyms, whether it's lifetime on one end or planet fitness on the other. I think that there are certain things people are spending on. And I know, I mean, this feels like the recession that we've all been waiting so long to finally hit. Like people have never been so excited for a recession, but we are seeing, despite all these headlines, we're seeing people spend. And I think what was interesting, membership and the amount and the price per membership were both of double digits. Well, and it's kind of what Dave Zervos was saying that, you know, on the big picture, giving people 4% on their money all of a sudden is the kind of windfall we haven't had in a long time. Yeah, maybe even ever for a lot of people. But the question is, are they seeing that, right? Or is this an outlet? And this is something that after being cooped up, I mean, it's been a long time. You and I had many a during and post-pandemic conversation. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the gym is some form of a necessity for people, right? Perhaps it's less discretionary and it's more staples. And obviously that's, depending on what the spectrum is and how much you're spending, that may sound a little bit absurd. But I think we are seeing people spend on things they want. We're seeing people spend on things they need. And perhaps this is some blend in between. Yeah, Lifetime, I mean, I'm not even that familiar with the company, but um, for those who don't know, we're talking about average membership of $162 a month, over 200 in a lot of urban centers. Do you think these are going to be the first to crack in a macro slowdown? Or literally, I mean, listen, student loan payments, they went through and looked at this clientele. And if they start saying, I have to pay a couple hundred bucks a month once those payments restart, then I'm going to have to cut my pricey gym membership. Right. So now it's a really interesting question, because on the one hand, we're looking at the price level. On the other hand, we have to think about the demographic. Do we think that people are going to stop buying luxury handbags is is probably a similar conversation, right? They're more expensive than aspirational. But are those is that demographic as targeted? So I think that is worth thinking about who the lifetime demographic is. It's much smaller business, right? The numbers you just put up contrast that to Planet Fitness, where you and I talk about 16, 17 million Mm -hmm. subscribers. So I, I do think there's an element there where they probably do have a healthy clientele. And I don't know how many of them are someone in college or someone post-college thinking that through. It could just be someone that wants access to, uh, to their pool as well. So I, I would say right now in the spectrum of things, we do have only effectively two publicly traded gyms on both sides of the spectrum serving different roles. 
I think what we are seeing right now, Lifetime was a little late to that recovery party, and now they're enjoying it. I don't know how quickly they're going to lose it. So real quickly, Simeon, why only a market perform on the stock? Listen, I think that there, there's still stocks. Right now, we've been watching the concerns you're raising, and I think we have to figure out valuation. But this is this was encouraging. I think when you and I have been talking about Planet for a while, I think they caught the train earlier. I think people went back quicker to this $10 a month effectively price tag there that most people could jump onto. I think Lifetime was a little bit later. And I think what we're seeing now is you're seeing some nice results where both of those are up double digits. But I think fair question. All right, Simeon Siegel, thank you for your time today. I uh, appreciate you checking in on this. Shares of Lifetime Fitness. Meanwhile, the Dow's down 288 points. Coming up, a regional bank, a retailer, and a restaurant all on deck with results. We have those details in earnings exchange in a moment. Here's another look in the meantime of shares of First Republic, which were paused again for volatility. They're down 40%, but back over $9 a share, which they briefly dipped below in the last 15 minutes or so. Again, a 40% drop today after last night's earnings debacle. The exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Down day for the Dow, but that doesn't mean it isn't time for your CNBC News update at this hour. I'm Tyler Matheson. The World Health Organization says there is a high risk of biological hazard in Sudan after combatants seized a laboratory, according to Reuters. This comes as the Sudanese army and the rival paramilitary force agreed to a three-day ceasefire. It's a shaky one. The WHO said on Friday that more than 400 people have been killed since the conflict began. After seeing huge success with 2021's Squid Games, Netflix says it will invest $2.5 billion in South Korean film and TV production over the next four years, double the amount it has spent in Korea since 2016. Netflix's co-CEO Ted Sarandos made the uh, commitment during a meeting with the South Korean president in Washington. Sarandos said Netflix is confident that the Korean creative industry will continue to tell great stories. And the 2024 election is likely to feature massive turnover in local election officials. A survey from the Brendan Center for Justice reveals that approximately one in five of all election workers will be new and will have never worked a presidential election before. Experts warned that losing expertise and election workers may hurt the management of future elections. Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. Tyler, thank you very much. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, Microsoft and Alphabet, both negative over the past 12 months. Which will matter more to the stocks, AI or the cloud? We've got details with their earnings looming right after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, for today's Tech Check, it's all about the marquee names reporting after the bell today. Alphabet and Microsoft, of course. I shouldn't frame it like this, but who will come out on top? Eric Sheridan is Managing Director at Goldman Sachs. He covers Alphabet for us. Uh, Morgan Stanley's Keith Weiss is here to preview Microsoft today. And from the investor side, James Chuckmuck is here. He's co-founder of Clockwise Capital. On set for all of this as well is our own Deirdre Bosa. Deirdre, welcome to you. Let's start with Alphabet coming off three straight quarters of earnings declines. They recently announced drastic cost cuts, including their first major mass layoff since going public. They're also shoveling cash into artificial intelligence. And Eric, you say AI is one of the key things to watch here. But how much is that really going to show up in today's report? I think there are going to be three important components to uh, the report tonight. Number one is going to be the strength or uh, cyclicality in the advertising business that comes through in search and YouTube. That's probably going to be the biggest driver of incremental results uh, tonight. Second will be the cost-cutting initiatives that you referenced, how that flows through numbers beyond just the report tonight in Q1 and how it moves deeper into the year and maybe even changes some of the trajectory on costs going out to 2024. And then last Lastly, I would say the AI initiative, you know, the company has been much more on the front foot uh, in the last two to three weeks in terms of press coverage of their AI initiatives and putting on display some of what they try to build for the long term. That contrasts with six, eight, ten weeks ago when I think the company was was a little bit more on the back foot uh, and Microsoft had a little bit more of the offensive on the narrative. Sure. Okay. They, you have a buy rating, a 128 price target, Deirdre. A lot of people focus on the valuation, which I think around 23 times, maybe 10 points lower than Microsoft. But maybe the discount's warranted. I don't know. I was actually kind of surprised to hear Eric say that they're not on the back foot anymore because I feel like they're even more on the back foot, really? actually. Remember the New York Times article that said that Samsung was actually considering yes. possibly Bing for their search engine? That is a very big deal. And they said that there was panic inside of Google. So I'm not sure if any of the analysts are going to ask about it on the call tonight. But there is this sense that has really been the narrative this year is that Google has had to play catch up. They continue to do so. They continue to have to protect that moat at all costs. And Senator Pichai is very good at saying that they're going to be responsible. They have to balance the cautiousness with the boldness. Is that going to be enough for investors at a time when they also have to cut costs? It's a bit of a paradox, right? They got to cut costs, but then get really excited about this future innovation. Right. Invest heavily to keep up. All right, Chuck Muck, I know you're big on Amazon, but if I had to press you on Google versus Microsoft, who'd you rather today? Definitely Microsoft. Hmm. Uh, I think I'm on team Deidre as it relates to uh, the alphabet. I I think it's going to be a back half story. I think it's going to be... a lot of opaqueness as it relates to the uh, the acceleration that we need to see on the search side, as well as uh, kind of re- resumption of growth uh, on the YouTube side. And I don't think we're going to get that much clarity on the cost side of the picture. It's a lot of generic language to date, and, uh, and this is not a company that really likes to get granular and quantify yeah. uh, the kinds of things that investors are nervous about. All right, Microsoft, me- you know. Yeah, I was going to say, let me come back to you on Microsoft in just a moment, actually, because I really take your point. And I just want to give Eric a chance to respond before we let you go, Eric, to what Deirdre and uh, James just said. We laid out um, about a month and a half ago that no one has invested more in AI than Alphabet has over the last five years. So Milpa Chai first talked about it being an AI first company at Google I.O. in 2017. I wouldn't measure who wins or loses AI based on the first three to six months uh, of this narrative. I think a lot of this uh, story still is to be told in the years ahead. All right, Eric Sheridan, thank you, sir. We appreciate your time joining us from Goldman today. As we turn to Microsoft, also on deck, facing slowing growth in the cloud and sharp slide in demand for things like personal computers. Of course, perhaps arguably at the forefront of the AI race. We turn to Keith for opportunity in this stock. Um, talk to us about what your expectations are and, and what do you say to people who go, well, but it's, it's expensive. 
Yeah, I would say compared to the opportunity, it's not expensive as of yet. Um, like you were talking about, generative AI is a massive opportunity for Microsoft on a go-forward basis. And we like their positioning because they benefit not just on the platform side of the equation, hosting the GPT model um, that powers ChatGPT, but also a lot of other products. But they also have a broader application suite where they can monetize that through stuff like Copilot for GitHub or uh, Viva Sales. There's going to be a co-pilot for Office 365 at some point that's going to be coming out. So they have both the underlying technology, but also a lot of avenues to monetize it on a go-forward basis. That's going to expand out the opportunity a lot and more than justify the valuation in my view. James? I'd agree with all those points, but we do take pause a little bit on the valuation side. I mean, it's still at 10 times sales. Um, the, the comps are, are negative right now. I mean, you're, you're talking about decelerating growth uh, on the cloud side still question marks as to when we're going to get that resumption of growth on personal computing as well as gaming. And, and at the end of the day, you know, the AI question is, is a big one and probably going to be material for all the companies that we're talking about today. But, you know, it's still very, very early days. So yeah. we like it, you know, we like it into the quarter, but it's, it, it's, it's the, given the valuation, it's certainly not a top five position. Georgia? I think we said early about five times in this conversation. It is very, very early days. And what we're going to get tonight is sort of the near-term risk for Microsoft and Google, by the way. And a lot of that centers on cloud for Microsoft. It is such an indication of how the rest of spending is going in the enterprise world. So if that disappoints, that could be a very big problem. Also, because let's not forget where these companies now stand in terms of the broader marketplace. I mean, concentration in these names has only been increasing this year. So it's going to have major ramifications. And I think a stumble in cloud for Microsoft and Alphabet um, would have major ramifications for that near-term stock price and valuation. And Keith, maybe you can just add a, a comment on the cloud here. And it, obviously, it would seem that Microsoft should recover from it, even if they have one better, because they can tell this great forward story, which even though it's early, is clearly already priced into the, the stock in terms of the multiple. And it's only a couple percentage points off its all-time high. Yeah, and I, I think the tension is definitely there. There's the tension between the, the near-term cyclical pressures on, on cloud, and we talk about that in terms of cloud optimization. We think we're probably halfway, more than halfway through that cloud optimization activity um, but then on the other side, there's the much more expansive um, sort of fundamental secular um, opportunity for Microsoft in generative AI and more broadly in AI. Um, I, I do think this uh, Azure number is going to be very important for the near-term direction of the stock. But I, I get the sense there's a lot of investors who are waiting in the sidelines who want to be on board with Microsoft, are worried about that deceleration in Azure. Mm -hmm. And when we do start to see that stabilize, I think that should be a good period for the stock. All right. Yesterday, everyone was in the Google basket. Today, it's all about Microsoft. We'll leave it there. Thank you, everybody. Keith Weiss, James Chuckmuck, and of course, our own Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, is geothermal power about to go mainstream? Diana Olick is at a construction site of what will be the largest geothermal residential building in the country. Diana, what can you tell us? Well, Kelly, they're drilling more than 300 holes deep into the ground, but they're not mining for gold. Something even more valuable, I'll explain, coming up next. Welcome back. An ambitious law to cut emissions from buildings in New York City goes into effect next year. One building in Brooklyn getting ahead of that. They'll be at net zero upon completion in 2025. Diana Olick is at the construction site with a look at what will be the largest geothermal residential building in the state. Diana. 
Well, Kelly, geothermal heating and cooling has been around for a while, but generally just on single homes or small buildings. But Lendlease, an Australia-based developer, is now testing this on a massive scale here in Brooklyn. 320 boreholes are being drilled nearly 500 feet into the ground, creating a complex loop of piping that will eventually result in the largest geothermal apartment complex in the U.S. What we're looking at now, again, I kind of akin this to your heart and to the, the veins and arteries in your body. This is how it works. Water below the frost line is at a constant temperature. By drilling down to it and creating a loop system of pipes, the water is brought up through heat pumps, which can heat or cool the building all year long. It's approximately 55 degrees once you get below the frost line, and we are using that constant temperature to cool in the summer and to be warmer in the winter. The project, which takes up a full city block on the edge of the East River, will have 834 rental units across five buildings, including a 37-story tower. Using geothermal will reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by an estimated 53 percent, but it'll cost about 6 percent more to build. However, over a 20-year span, we more than make that back. So as a long-term owner of an apartment building, we view this as, in addition to its sustainability, a financially sustainable practice. Now, Lendlease will also get a $4 million clean energy grant from the state of New York. And while there will be some affordable housing units in the buildings, given the view that they're going to get from here, you can bet that the rents on this building, when it gets finished, are going to be top dollar, which right now, Given the size, depending on the size, would be anywhere from seven to $10,000 a month. Kelly? And Diana, I'm wondering about the prevalence of geothermal for, you know, uh, single family homes across the country. That's been a, a long under consideration idea, but is it economical? Yes, it absolutely is. In fact, we did a story out in Texas a while back about a massive geothermal residential housing community of single family homes, hundreds of them. That's actually easier to do than this because you can spread it out over wide swaths of land. It's difficult to do in a large city because you have to find just the right piece of land and make sure that it has all the things in it that will be able to support geothermal, but it certainly can be done. And that's what they're showing here. They're hoping it's a template for other cities with laws like New York, like Boston. Boston and Washington, D.C. also upping their emission standards. That's a really interesting point, how it'd be even harder uh, for some of these major complexes. Diana, thanks so much. Our Diana Oleg reporting. Still ahead, Chipotle has beaten earnings estimates in 18 of the past 20 quarters. Short interest in Penske is about 21 percent as freight recession talk fears ramp up. And PacWest is the next regional bank to report as it's down 8 percent today. Uh, it offloaded a billion dollars at a loss last quarter in terms of its bond portfolio. We'll tell you how to position ahead of all of these reports with a Dow down 310 points near session lows right after this. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange. You've got the action, the story, and the trade on three names, Chipotle, Penske, and PacWest today. We'll start with Chipotle, whose shares are higher into the print and up more than 50% off their recent lows. We're eyeing foot traffic, especially after introducing some new menu items and reward initiatives in Q1. Full-year margin expectations are near 26%. And don't forget, Chipotle posted a rare miss last quarter, setting shares lower by about 6% on the news. CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez is here with our trades today. She is Lido Advisors Chief Market Strategy and a CNBC contributor. Gina, good to see you. Chipotle, I don't know, can they keep going? Almost $1,800 a share right now. 
You know, this is a tough one because it is so highly priced. It is 40 times forward earnings. But if you look at the restaurant industry, you know, traffic, same-store sales have been declining January, February, March. You see a very, very steep decline. Chipotle but has been holding up. And, you know, Chipotle was—did not raise their prices as much as their competitors. Um, and so, while that really hurt them, and that was part of their miss last quarter, was that they, you know, got slammed by food prices, a lot of those food prices are finally starting starting to let up. Food pricing is starting to, to drop, with the exception of beef. Everything else is, is falling, and that should free up some margin for Chipotle, which is badly needed. Um, but the good thing is, is that as we go into a recession, this is actually, because they kept their pricing, uh, their price increases more modest uh, relative to their competitors, they could attract uh, more sales, um, while, quite frankly, people are just going to be spending less on, on yeah. fast casual restaurants. No, it's in fact, it's impressive at a time when everyone seems to be beating because of these big price hikes that they're choosing a different tack and you think it would pay off in the long run. Let's pivot and talk about Penske, Gina, because those shares are down ahead of their results, but up 18% this year. Last quarter was strong, but again, we have talk of a trucking recession, worries about rising inventory levels, concern about kind of what's going on in the auto market generally. Do you like the stock here? So this one's interesting because the, the forward, this is obviously really cheap stock, 8.8 8. 8 times forward earnings hmm. and, and expectations for growth next year. They're still expected to continue to post a loss next year. Um, but, you know, they're coming out of three years of a trucking shortage because of, you know, COVID, uh, you know, COVID disruptions, and there was a trucker shortage. You just weren't enough truckers. And so they're coming into a slowdown um, when the whole industry itself was in shortage. And so people are still needing to buy trucks, and they are the leader in this space. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, they have, they're definitely priced down uh, for, 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 for a negative outlook, but they have more upside. Interesting. Okay, then let's close with probably the biggie of the day, which is obviously PacWest. After what happened at First Republic, PacWest shares are down 8%, kind of in sympathy with that. It's had its own challenges, uh, but yet Western Alliance was able to turn in better than expected results. What's your read here? You know, the, the, the trouble with PacWest is that they are in a group right now that just is unloved. Since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and PacWest felt it along with everybody else, um, their stock dropped dramatically. And quite frankly, they lost a, a significant portion of, of deposits as well, along with many um, smaller banks who were losing deposits. Um, they were forced to go to borrow at, at higher rates from the Federal Reserve in order to, to shore up their their capital, and they're seeking a buyer for their commercial real estate and small business lending unit in order to, again, shore up their balance sheet. So, you know, none of these are exactly signs that, you know, help make you think, ah, this is a good one to buy. Um, you know, but I, I think that, that this space, you have to be very careful. Um, if they can achieve this sale, they could be set up quite nicely relative to the other banks. Right. Or maybe any sort of part in common as we watch one of the few days all of a sudden, Gina, where we have some big stock moves, time when the VIX has been under 15. The markets make sense to you here? You know, I mean, the, the markets are—the markets don't know where they're going. You know, yeah. I, I think that—that's <laughs> very, very clear. And I think volatility is where we go from here. You know, we, we yeah. saw um, the markets destroy everything that had a high multiple and then lean into everything that was growthy. Um, now it's saying, gosh, maybe there really is going to be a recession. They don't know—we we don't know where we're going yet. The, the pricing still hasn't settled. Mm -hmm. And I would say that you have to mind your, your actual— 
you know, mind the the underlying fundamentals of every stock you're buying right yeah, now. Yeah, to your point, the VIX, you know, finally getting kind of a two-point jump today. We'll have more on that next hour. Gina Sanchez, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. That does it for Earnings Exchange today and for The Exchange. But next on Power Lunch, we've got an exclusive interview with JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes. Tyler's getting ready. I'll join him after this break. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.